to the Garden Church Podcast. The following message was previously recorded at the Garden Church in downtown Long Beach, California. I'd like to uh, kind of begin with a, 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 a maybe a preliminary question, and that is, uh, what does love enable you to do that obedience or duty might not. Because we are all in various kinds of situations and circumstances, right, in which our, our legal obligation is to do X, Y, or Z, or in which we have, um, uh, we're paid to do a certain level of responsibility, and that those are all probably well and good and, and fine and everything. But sooner or later, we come to the edges of what duty and obedience enable, whether it's in, in, in our workplace environment or our friendships or marriages or whatever, whatever it is. We get to the place where we're at the borderline of what duty will enable. And I'm going to suggest to you that what enables you to go beyond the borders of duty, beyond the borders of obedience beyond the limits of necessary, is love. That love has a compelling power. And what I'm going to invite you to sit with me on and and think about this is what, what I've been kind of wrecked with this week in preparation for the sermon is the power of a greater affection. The power of a greater affection. What does love call us to do that simple belief or obedience doesn't enable in us. Does that make sense? So the power of a greater affection. And the text uh, is, uh, is Acts chapter 14. Once again, we're doing kind of a, a flyover of the book of Acts. Um, uh, Luke's kind of snapshot portrait of the, the growth and the ministry and the transition of the church from a little backwater country in the middle of nowhere that was torn apart by conflict still is thousands of years later. Uh, you could almost superimpose the headlines from this week onto Israel 2,000 years ago and be as contemporary then as, as we feel they are now. It's been a land since the beginning that has been torn by this level of conflict and tension. What good can come out of such, such a dark and difficult and painful place? So that at the beginning of the book of Acts, we are in Jerusalem, um, and, and by the end, we are, we are in the center of the universe in the city of Rome. And here we are in transition as the gospel has moved out of this upper room, tiny 120 people to thousands of people in various places throughout the Roman Empire. And we are joining Paul partway through with Barnabas of his first missionary journey. We've been sent out by Antioch. We were there last week. Uh, and and, and are, are, are just following the main roads. They stay within the province that they are being sent to. They don't go beyond the borders of that. And so we'll pick this story up in Acts chapter 14, verse 1. And uh, we'll, we'll uh, follow along with, with Paul and Barnabas in their, in their journey. So at Iconium, which is where we, we ended up last week, Paul and Barnabas went, as usual, to the Jewish synagogue. And there they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Gentiles believe. Again, Gentiles here are those who are God-fearers, those who have 
have um, fallen in love, so to speak, with the God of the Jews, but they can never become full Jews. So the best that can happen to them is that they join in the synagogue, they become God-fearers, they're able to participate in the life of the community without ever being really fully enmeshed within the community. So there are a number of them who are there, a great number of Jews and Gentiles who believe, but the Jews who refuse to believe, same group as last, last time but a different uh, city, stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. You guys clearly, as God-fearers, don't understand the depth and breadth of the heresy these guys are promoting, this kind of thing, right? So they're now beginning to tease out the coalition of the faithful that has believed and begun to follow. So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there speaking boldly for the Lord who confirmed the message of His grace by enabling them to do miraculous signs and wonders. Just underline that piece again. Miraculous signs and wonders have the value in this place, as well, I think, throughout most of the book of Acts, of confirming what, what God is doing. So they are always intended to be signs, to point beyond themselves. The miracles no matter how spectacular they are, are never intended to become the main event. They are never the point. They always illustrate the main point, which is the glory, grace, and grandeur of God. So here, the Spirit enables the church to have their belief supported by these miraculous signs and wonders. Now, that's going to become important a little bit later on, so I wanted to stop there for a sec. The people then of the city were divided. Some of them sided with the Jews, others with the apostles. As it turns out, there was a plot afoot among the Gentiles and Jews, together with their leaders, to mistreat them and stone them. So they found out about it and fled to the Lyconian cities of Lystra and Derbe, to the surrounding country, where they continued to preach the good news. Just want to underline something. Everybody caught that, right? There is an assassination plot. This is not the first time this has happened to Paul Saul. This seems to be a regular pattern. Everywhere he goes, the next thing that happens is people plot to kill him. Right? And please notice, this does not slow him down. He just says, well, we're going to die if we stay here, so let's leave. He does not seem to be bothered by the fact that everywhere he goes, people want to kill him. Now, what is it that enables Paul, Saul, not to lose sense of hope and identity in the face of this unrelenting opposition? This is way beyond playground bullying. They want to kill him. And what does he do? Well, I think we better leave this town and go do what we've done here somewhere else so that they can get in on the Let's Kill Paul parade. That seems to be the model here, right? And I'm going to suggest to you that what enables Paul to do this is the power of a greater affection. That he has so fallen in love with God, that he has so fallen in love with the kingdom of God that is coming, that this is a minor setback. It's not even a speed bump in his pursuit of this greater affection. That is the only way I have to understand why he does what he continues to do. 
Because what would, what would you do? What would I do? How many of us are just get our whole day ruined if people are offended by what we say or think? They just don't like, they just don't. We, we become instantly junior hires. You know, they said mean things about me. They don't like me. And, and Paul just says, take a number. Right? They're trying to kill me. What do we do? We keep on keeping on. Does that make sense? So he goes on, continue to preach the good news. And now in Lystra, there sat a man. Please notice the threefold beat here. He's crippled in his feet. He was lame from birth, never walked. So for, for, for Luke, as a physician, remember, he's a doctor. This means this is not ever going to happen. This guy's crippled from, from birth. This is the way he's going to remain. So. This man, however, was listening to Paul as Paul was speaking. Paul looked directly at him and saw that he had faith, that he was standing in a reality that enabled him to be healed. So he called out, stand up on your feet. Paul simply recognized the healing that had already taken place, but which has not been actualized in his body yet. You with me? And he calls it out. Stand up on your feet. And this guy who had never pulled himself up on the, on the ottoman, this guy who had never stumbled to dad, this guy who had never, ever sat up on his own, instantly jumped up and began to walk. Why? Because he stood in the reality in which that is possible. It's called faith. Paul calls this out. Now, please notice what happened. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, oh, wait, you feel how this is going sideways. They shouted in the Lyconian language, the gods have come down in human form. They called Barnabas Zeus, the leader, the more authoritative one. And Paul, they called Hermes because he had a nice scarf. No. Because he was the chief speaker. He was the spokesman. He was, he was in, in, in another mythology, he's the Mercury who speaks the word of the God. I just wanted to check and see if you all are still awake. So, the priest of Zeus, hearing that Zeus had come to town and whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. Please notice, all of this is taking place in the Lyconian language. So, when the apostles, please notice this is the second time this has happened. I'm just going to underline this real quick because it will again show up here in a minute. Apostles is now broadened to include people like Paul and Barnabas, neither of whom were followers of Jesus as one of the twelve. Apostles, in other words, biblically, is not just the twelve. It is those who are the sent ones, which is what the word apostolos means. And Paul and Barnabas are among them. The reason I say that is position, apostle, is less important than function, apostling. And it is the functioning, the doing, that enables them, by Luke, to be called apostles. Well, they're, they're apostling, so they must be apostles. Do, do you see how that works? It's not about title or position or authority or power until it's about function. So... Then the apostles Paul and Barnabas heard this. They figured out because they don't speak Lyconian. Somebody translated what the heck is happening. 
And all these guys are starting to bring bulls and goats and wreaths. And they're starting, wait, 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 wait. They are freaked out. They tore their clothes. They rushed down to the crowds. They're shouting, why are you doing this? We, too, are only men, human beings like you. We're not gods. We are bringing you good news. We are telling you to turn from these worthless things. Apparently, Paul had not gone to the Dale Carnegie School. He didn't know how to impress people because these worthless things were the roots of their worship. They were the center of their lives. The worthless things are Zeus and Hermes and the goats and the bulls and the wreaths, all of the systems by which, and Paul is just, he's going to use this language later on, but it will be much more refined by the time he gets to Athens. Right now, he's just frustrated that these people have misunderstood who he is and what this miracle means. This miracle that was intended to be a sign has now become a distraction to the gospel. You will notice this is the last miracle, as far as I can tell, that is recorded in the book of Acts. That's not to say there aren't any that take place. It's that Luke no longer records them. Why? Because miracles, if they're allowed to become sideshows, get in the way of the gospel. It's not that we long for, we hunger for miracles, right? We pray for healing. But we've got to remember, they're always secondary. They're never the point. Yeah? With me? Everybody okay on that? I can sense a little... Okay, hang in there, because it's going to get worse. So, worthless things, the living God, who made heaven and earth and sea and everything in them. In the past, this God let all the nations go their own way, but He has not left Himself without a testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven. Zeus didn't do that. The God who created the heavens did that. He's given you crops in their seasons. Hermes didn't do that. The God who created the heavens did that. He provides you with plenty of food and He fills your hearts with joy. Why? Because He's kind. The first lie of the enemy is that God is not good. The first lie of the enemy is that God is not good. But then we have to account for all of the good things that happen. So Paul just says, let's cut to the chase. The reason these good things happen is because we have a good God who is kind. So, even with these words, they still had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. So, Gets worse. Some Jews came from Antioch. This is Pisidian Antioch where they were last week, right? And Iconium and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul, dragged him outside the city, and left him for dead. So the disciples gathered around him for a while. The, the, the verb tense here indicates a longer process. This is not a moment. This is a, so the disciples are gathering around him. And he got up and went back into the city. Does anybody else think something's wrong with the boy? Right? What is it that compels such crazy action? 
the power of a greater affection. This is the best you can do? Kill me? I've been dead. It's not that bad. Remember, Paul got knocked off his horse by the power of the living God. He was blind for three days. He saw things that he could never tell anybody about. He heard things that he could never describe to anybody. For the, I don't know what you make of near-death or near-life experiences that are in the movies and so on and so forth. I'm not going to suggest there's anything theologically appropriate necessary, but something is beyond this. And Paul, having a glimpse of that, is driven by an awareness that death is not the worst thing that can happen to people. So here he's stoned, left for dead. The disciples functionally raise him from the dead. Hello. And instead of leaving the scene of the crime, he goes back into town. Apparently, it didn't turn out quite the way it was supposed to. So, the next day then, he and Barnabas left for Derby. Okay. So they preached the good news there in that city. They won a large number of disciples. And then, notice what he does. He goes back, retracing his footsteps to every single city. Now remember, the reason he had left all of these cities, Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, was because there was a sizable collection of people in those cities who were plotting to kill him. And what does he do? He goes back through those cities compelled by the power of a greater affection to put himself in harm's way. Why? Because he wanted to strengthen the disciples. He wanted to encourage them to remain true to their faith. And then in a word of personal testimony, he says, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. It's not that bad. God is good. All the time. Just because they want to kill you doesn't mean that God's not good. Do, do, do you see? So he goes on. Paul and Barnabas, then, in each of those cities, appointed elders for them in each church. Now, this again, remember we talked about the apostles here a little bit earlier on? This is not a structuralizing of the church. It's just a recognition that the Holy Spirit is bubbling up structure. You've got to have bones for the body. You've got to have structure, right? Otherwise, the thing collapses on itself. So the Holy Spirit equips certain people to provide certain gifts of leadership. Apostles in the first case, not just the twelve, but others as they need arise. And here now, elders, people who are, um, have been around for a little while in, 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 and who have demonstrated the, the lifestyle, the capacity, the character, and the behaviors of somebody who is elding. Who is, who is caring for the community. Now, remember, these churches are only like 10 or 15 minutes old. So, elder apparently is a relative term. Right? You've been saved eight minutes, so you get to lead. Do, do you see what I'm... I'm being facetious, but you, you see what I'm saying. Apparently, eldering is more a work of the Spirit then it is a matter of longevity. There's a, and I don't want to be harsh on this, but we need to be clear. Simply being in the faith for a long period of time doesn't mean you're an elder. doesn't mean you're mature. doesn't mean you have capacity or character to lead. 
There are people who are relative newcomers to the faith who because of the work of the Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit, and their allegiance to the yes of the Spirit are more competent to eld than those who have been around for a while. Being on the way and being in the way are different things. Everybody okay? Because this is the reason I want to just stop here for a minute, because this is where we're at. Darren said we're five years old. And we're still trying to figure out the kind of structure that we need for the kind of growth in the life that the community of the Spirit is bringing out here. Because the truth is, any structure will work if you got the right people. And no structure works if you got the wrong people. So it's not about, let's get the right structure so we're safe. If we're counting on structure to save us, I can point you to a church with any given structure that has gone sideways. Why? Because it's not the structure, it's the people who fill the structure. So as the Spirit continues to, to lead us and guide us, and we try and discern as best we can who the leaders are and who the elders are and the ways that they work, we're probably going to get some stuff right and we're probably going to get some stuff wrong and the Lord is going to continue to build His church. Everybody okay with that? Not so much. Okay, so anyway, so that's what's happening. And <laughs> how did they choose Him? With prayer, with fasting, and then they said, well, it's your church, so we're going to commit Him to you. That's what we want. Because they had put their trust in the Lord. So after going through Pisidia, you'll notice this is backwards tracking to where when they came. They came to Pamphylia. When they preached the word in Perga, they finally went down to Italia. And then from Italia, they sailed back to Antioch, where they had been committed to the grace of God for the work which they had now completed. So this was not a lifetime appointment of mission. This was a task. Preach the gospel within the province on the island. On arriving there, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them, how we had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. Please notice, what did they miss relating in their report? They don't talk about the signs and wonders, and they don't talk about the fact that in every city, the mark of success was that they wanted to kill us. That's not the point. What is the point? The door, God has opened the door. He's done amazing things. And the door of faith is open to the Gentiles. That's going to set us up for where Darren's going next week. They stayed there a long time with the disciples. Now, what I want to do with this and what I want to invite you to in this is that I think, I hope, I've tried to make the case that the only thing that explains what we're seeing here, I think, is that Paul loved Jesus more than he loved his own life. That he woke up every day with a yes in his heart that shaped his entire life. Does that mean he wasn't afraid? No. It means when he was afraid, he asked for courage, not escape. Why do I say this? Because I think that this is the season that the garden is in. I think we're being invited to a yes. I think, frankly, some of you are like me. That the fear paralyzes 
what would normally would be obedience. Does anybody recognize that? I'm, I'm, I'm afraid to have that conversation. I'm afraid to love someone like that. I'm afraid to give that way. I, I, to, Darren called for radical. Really? Generosity? Will there be enough for me? That's a fear-based question. It's not a yes-based question. It's not, however, your job just to clench your teeth and power through. It's your job to fall in love. And the power of that greater affection will enable what obedience will not enable. The power of a greater affection will empower what duty will not push us to. Does does that make sense? I mean, it's the same thing in in anything that any endeavor that you're in that's going to cost you something, that's going to take a risk. It's the same thing. I mentioned mentioned this before, but, but the reason I don't commit adultery is not because I'm afraid of getting caught or because it did ruin my ministry or because or because. It's because... I love Judy. It's the power of a greater affection. Do you see? So here's, here's Paul and Barnabas who are invited to, to, in, into a community in which, I mean, if anybody could whine, these guys could whine. Right? Oh, you, 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 you just have no idea what they what they said about us i just want them to go to hell what enabled that to be not, not even present in the text I, I love god more than i'm going to be put off by the hatred of people i paul was really hard to offend i don't know if you've noticed this He just kept showing up. It's like that pop-up children's clown. You you know what I mean, right? Or the Energizer Bunny just keeps on going. It's like, no, guy, you're dead. And these were not amateurs at stoning, folks. When they said they left him for dead, they knew what dead meant. Do, do, Do you see? It's not, well, he was just sleeping. He was just taking a nap under the pile. No, he was dead. And as a result of being raised from the dead, he went back into town. I mean, come on. What enables that? You know what enables that. The same thing that will enable you to have a hard conversation with your coworker. Because it's not different. It's not different. It's the same thing that will be, enable you to treat your neighbor with kindness and generosity when they treat you with anger and resentment. It's the same thing that will keep you showing up in your marriage. It's the same thing that will keep you pushing in and not avoiding the pain by medication or by drugs or alcohol or sex or work or whatever. You keep, you keep showing up. And the reason I wanted to say that part is because I think some of you are right on the edge of quitting. 
This is too hard. This is too hard. This is too hard. Yeah, it is for you. But you're not in this alone. You're being invited to fall in love. And then be called, not driven, not driven, because love doesn't drive, does it? It draws, it compels, it invites. I will do things for love that I would never do for money. I will do things for love that I will never do for duty. I will do things for love that I will never do out of sheer teeth, grit, obedience. Malcolm Muggeridge, as you know, uh, wrote one of the most popular uh, autobiograph- or biographies of Mother Teresa of Calcutta. And he relates in that uh, a particular story in which he having followed her around on a day in which there were tourists who by that time had, they were kind of mission tourists who were, saw her and were with her in the lepers and the rescuing of the children who had been set out with the trash and the embracing of people who, were, who, were, who she felt ought not ever die. She, her mission was that nobody dies without knowing that somebody loves them. So she went onto the funeral pyre. She went onto the trash heap. She went into the gutter. She went into the darkest and most difficult of places. And one of the tourists said, "I would, I would. You couldn't pay me enough to do what you do." And Teresa, twinkle in her eye, said, "You couldn't pay me enough either." What I do, I do for love. What's that mean? It means don't quit. It means don't give up. Don't give up on God because He's good. He's kind. Don't give up on your own journey. Don't hide from your pain. Keep pressing in. It's hard. I know it's hard. The solution to the heart is not try harder. The solution to the heart is fall in love more. Ask Him to enable you to love. The, the final piece I want to say here, some of you are going through a season right now in which you're just wondering, what is the point of all of this pain? Of all of this risk? And the point is very simply this. It's to increase your capacity for love. The function of pain, the function of loss, the function of all of these things is to increase capacity for love. That's what it's for. How do I know that? Can you think of a greater example, a greater capacity for love than was demonstrated on the cross? I can't. It was not nails that held Jesus to the cross. It was the power of a greater affection that enabled him for the joy that was set before him to endure. Let's pray. Oh God, I just pray for my friends. I pray for myself. This has really been tough for me this week. And I know probably for others in our hearing that we need to recalibrate what normal means as being disciples. We need to uh, 
I, I, maybe it's just I, I need to fall in love with you more because I find myself so fear-based so many times. So anxious that to take the risk of the conversation, to take the risk of the appointment, to take the risk of generosity even is more than I can do. And my sense, Lord, is that there are others who are here like me to to whom you are speaking not with stern reprimand challenging us to get on with it but with great love inviting us to the dance. And so I pray, O Lord, for for them, I pray for myself that you would give us a clearer vision of the kingdom, a clearer vision of Jesus, a clearer vision of this outrageous love that will enable risk, that will push back against fear, that will push through hardships and let them have their purpose of increasing capacity. I ask, oh God, especially for those who are feeling like giving up because it's just harder than they had anticipated, that you would come alongside them. Again, not with rebuke, but with invitation. You just take a minute to sit in the stillness. It's risky to let you love us. It's risky to let you love us that much. But we do. We have nothing better to do than let you love us. Recognizing as we do that that love will push us out the door. We will find ourselves in harm's way. We may even find ourselves threatened. Help us not to be afraid, but to let love drive out fear. Thank you for listening to the Garden Church Podcast. For more information about the Garden Church, visit thegardenlb.org.